Wow, eighth inning, 10 3. Bases are loaded for Verlander, who waits out a real pitch. He swings, and it's a high fly ball, deep center field. It is gone. Home run. And a huge backflip to celebrate. All right, Ben, start the show already. What is up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of Flippin' Bats, and I could not be more excited about this one today. I grew up one of the biggest Atlanta Braves fans on the entire planet, and today I get to talk to John Smoltz, the Hall of Famer, one of the big three in that Atlanta Braves rotation, a World Series champion. I'm going to bring him in in just a minute. It's going to be a blast of a conversation. I'm going to ask him about his favorite Bobby Cox ejection, his favorite Greg Maddox prank, and of course, so many questions from throughout his career and all of the milestones that he accomplished. So, you know what? Let's get to it now and welcome in the Hall of Famer and World Series champion, John Smoltz. Thank you so much for joining me, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. I want to start with with your career for a little bit, and I want to talk about that Braves team of the 90s and the 2000s, and I think of the run that you guys went on, and when I think of that Braves team, I think two things, Smoltz, Glavin, Maddox, and 14 consecutive division titles. It's remarkable. How, How did that happen? How do you win 14 in a row? And when you have that young core, did you ever imagine that would be the case? Not really. Uh, I think whenever you go through something and you're trying to be relevant, which we were not, you know, we had lost 100 games when I got there a couple years in a row. And then we added Maddox. And, you know, the idea of pitching with Bobby Cox being the central figure, I think the answer remains pretty simple. Bobby Cox was there during all of it. And we changed a lot of roster moves. We changed a lot of position players, but we kept our pitching pretty much intact. And you know, it's something difficult to do today. It's hard to keep three pitchers on one staff for 10 years. We were able to do that. And I think when you establish yourself on the mound that you can hide some, you know, warts or or, or some deficiencies mm-hmm. if uh, you're consistent on the mound. And certainly we would have liked to have been more successful as far as championships. But getting to 14 straight postseasons is something that I don't know we'll ever see again. I I agree with you. I I don't think we do. The consistency is remarkable. But you mentioned, so 95, the year that you did win the the championship and you became a World Series champion. When you look back on that year, what's what's some memories that stick out that you remember from that year? I remember being under a lot of pressure as a team because we hadn't won a World Series. We had lost, you know, the two coming in and we hadn't really... We were, you know, 91, you could toss up. I mean, that, that was an epic World Series. 92, we felt like we had a much better team. 93, we didn't get to the World Series, but we felt like we were such a much better team and the Phillies beat us. So 95 was something that no one wanted to deal with, you know, start talking about losing <laughs> your third World Series. And somewhere in sports, there's something wrong with what the, the narrative when they focus on that instead of the accomplishment getting to three and four yeah. years. So. I think the biggest thing that I remember is that it got harder. They added a wild card division and uh, a wild card team, which was the Colorado Rockies. They were the scariest team that we played, um, you know, in that in the beginning, just to get to the end. And I just remember facing three dynamic offenses and shutting them down was something that was 
you know, pretty remarkable in how we were able to win that last game one to nothing, of course, on Tom Glavin's gem against Cleveland. But they were Cleveland was loaded. The Rockies were loaded. The Reds had a great offense. And I kind of think we went through three of the best offenses that we had ever faced in one particular time. And that was there was a lot of pressure on us. And, and uh, being able to deliver was pretty huge. Was that 95 team the best of the bunch? It was the World Series championship team. But was there another team in that run of, of division titles that you think was a better team than that 95 team? I thought 93, we were really good. Um, and we just, we ran out of gas against the Phillies. They pulled off some miracles. That was when they had the bases loaded, nobody out in the night. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, we did. And, and Mitch Williams came out of a couple jams there. But, you know, 96 is the one that haunts us the most, I think, because 96, we were going to go back to back. And we had come back from three games to one down against the Cardinals. And we ran off a five-game stretch that's probably second to none. I mean, I think in that five games, we outscored our team by the team by like 40 runs. <laughs> we beat the Yankees 12 to one and 12 to nothing or something in the first two games of the World Series. We had run the gamut against the Cardinals, won one game like 15 or 14. It just we went on a five-game run that made us feel like, you know. First of all, being down three games to one, you don't feel good about your chances. But then when you win that series and beat the Yankees the first two games at home, you can't help but think that you're going to win another World Series. Yeah. And the fact that we did not win another game that year is pretty heart-wrenching. And, yeah. uh, you know, losing to Pettit myself one to nothing on an unearned run in game five was the back backbreaker, really. What was it? For you, John, uh, about the playoffs, you know, obviously three Hall of Famers in the rotation, you, Glavin, Maddox. But when it came October, when the calendar turned, that was your month, man. And and you were one of the best, if not the best, to do it in October. What was it? What changed for you? What clicked in October that said, all right, now, now I'm going to go? I think between the three of us, I had a little more ability to turn it up a little bit, you know, mix and match in the strike zone. In the postseason, the strike zone gets a little tighter. There's more eyeballs, more attention, and the guys get a little more aggressive at the plate and maybe cut off or um, take away what somebody else can do to them that they wouldn't do in the regular season. And I think that's the byproduct that I was able to bring is that I could I could elevate my fastball and, and, and velocity and, and throw my breaking pitches in the zone and get a little more swing and miss in the postseason. You know, I tried to win every game I pitched in the regular season, but I never went through a, po a regular season game and pitched a postseason game. And what I mean by that is every pitch, every detail, every focus that you put in the postseason is that much greater than the regular season. I, I couldn't survive a regular season if I had that approach. So yeah. fortunately, I say I stayed healthy enough. Um, you know, when you're pitching 250, 245, yeah. 50 innings every year, you're, you're basically going to get to the end of the year and whatever reserve you have, you're going to spend it. And imagine doing that 14 years in a row. You know, I missed one of those, one of those post seasons with Tommy John in 2000, but mm -hmm. you know, there was, there was no feeling or thought that there was a letdown or there was the hangover from year to year. We were just, I guess we trained differently and we were, we were not a max effort type pitching staff and that allowed us to stay relatively healthy but I loved that moment I wanted that moment and I wasn't afraid to fail and afraid for whatever the moment brought I actually thought it was great and I was 
at my best when um, it meant a little bit more. Yeah, the the three of you are so competitive. Were you guys competitive with each other? Like, would you like you know wager amongst yourselves in season, trying to propel yourselves better, and then all collectively, you guys became great because of how much you guys leaned on and competed against each other. Yeah, we had that indirect competitiveness, whether it was hitting, batting practice, or <laughs> game that we play. Um, we took a lot of pride in our pitching, and we play golf a lot. And we never did it to the bo- point where it was ever going to get somebody so ticked off or, you know, get personal. We 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 knew how to separate the game and have fun on the field, yeah. and and really pushed each other indirectly without ever saying anything. You know, there's a lot of pride in making sure that. If Tom Glavin threw a complete game four hitter, then Greg Maddox would or I would have to throw a three hitter or <laughs> throw a complete game. You know, so no one threw a no hitter, so we never had to reset the clock. There was always room to improve. Oh, that's great. Uh, so I want to ask because you were the only pitcher ever with 200 or more wins and 150 or more saves, which is remarkable. You know, I know you got injured in that season, as you talked about, and had to get Tommy John and came back. But what was that process like of shifting into the bullpen? Was that your idea? Is that something you wanted to do? Or is that something at first you were reluctant to do? Yeah, it's weird how it came about. I came back in 11 months. Uh, I was 34 years old. I wanted to prove I could be healthy. Uh, I was on a final year of my contract. And certainly at 34, I didn't know how much time you know, I was going to have to prove that uh, Tommy John's were not the epidemic that they are today, where it's like every everybody's getting them, right? And it's a little bit of a shame that, that we're talking about still Tommy John at the rate we do. But yeah. I came back in 11 months. I started four games. Each game got a little worse. I thought that I had uh, kind of re-injured my elbow, and I pretty much had had it. You know, I was very frustrated in New York. I remember ripping the jersey off my back saying, I can't do this anymore. And the of course, the trainers just kind of waited me out and knew that I was just a little bit emotional about the pain that I was dealing with. So they told me we're going to take, you know, go see Andrews in, in Birmingham, see what what the deal is. I went and he told me I just had tendonitis and I had to wait it out. So I waited about a month or so and I decided the only way to help the ball club in the best way that we that I thought I could would be pitching out of the pen. So I told my manager I was going to go to the minor leagues and just kind of work on this. And yeah. he wasn't he, he wasn't keen on it. He didn't think that <laughs> would be a good idea. Yeah. He said, I'll wait for you to be a starter. But I didn't have that opportunity to get ready at the level I wanted to. So I went down, rehab. Once I knew I could throw three days in a row, I declared myself ready, went up to the big leagues. The ironic thing about it, Bobby was – nobody knew what they were going to get, you know, and he said, I'll get you in when I can. And <laughs> I got in like an insignificant nine run, eight run inning at the ninth inning. We were up like eight. And I think I struck out the side throwing 98 and maybe 99 and everyone's eyes were like, you couldn't believe it. So I stayed in the pen, worked my way the last month, September, I ended up being the closer finishing off 10 of 11 games. And I just knew I'd go back to starting. Well, that off season and negotiations didn't uh, exactly go that way. <laughs> I was told I'd be the closer if I was going to stay in Atlanta, which I wanted to do. It's not my preference. I had to learn a whole new routine and a whole new job in a short off season. I decided to do it. Uh, it was a chaotic ride. It was like a roller coaster, but at the end of the day, it was it was pretty incredible for three years. My first year, I get 55 saves, which is yeah. you never can dream that's going to happen, and that pretty much cemented my fate. I thought. Um, <laughs> 
the whole idea was if we were going to be better as me as a closer, I would have stayed there. We could have yeah. won championships. I would have stayed there. The next year I had 34 saves at the all-star break. So that's 89 in a year and a half. And I, I just knew my arm couldn't handle this kind of workload. And eventually I went on the DL at the bottom line was we didn't win a series. And um, the third year, I think me closing, I led all of the starting pitchers pitchers and innings pitched going into game five in a five game <laughs> That's series. ridiculous. And I just said, you know what? I want to go back. And I was given the opportunity to go back and they thought I was crazy. Uh, everybody came out of the woodwork saying, this is the stupidest thing you've ever, you know, no one's ever done this. <laughs> uh, didn't start a game for five years in essence and was able to return and throw 230 innings that next time. That, that closer role, you mentioned everybody thought you were crazy. Closers, have to be a little crazy. There's a few screws loose for a lot of guys coming in in that ninth inning. How did you How did you do that? How did you go from preparing as a starter your entire career to coming out of the bullpen in the ninth inning in the most high-leverage situations there are? You know, it's going to sound a little counterproductive. I told you I'm not afraid to fail, and I love pressure. Um, and I think the one thing I did is try to create a simple approach. First of all, that I'd walk out of that door, I had a feeling that I could give it up. And the reason I'd say that is because I never wanted to get comfortable thinking that a three-run save or a two-run save or any kind of save would be easy. So I put myself on immediate notice to say, don't get carried away and be on point. Get the first hitter out. So I always thought about getting the first hitter out because if I did that, no matter what the score was, I was one pitch away if I gave up a hit of a double play getting out of the inning. Yeah. My philosophy was it's going to happen fast one way or another. I'm either going to get the save fast or I'm going to give it up fast. And what I mean by that is I wasn't going to kind of lallygag around. I was going to come after the hitter. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if it's a one nothing or one-run game, you're not just going to lay it in there. But I threw a ton of strikes as a closer. And I think a lot of closers nowadays are trying to kind of humiliate everybody. and They mm -hmm. feel like they got to strike everybody out. And they throw about 30 pitches sometimes to get the save, and they become less available for their team. So mm -hmm. it worked for me. Uh, I never gave up the idea of pitching. I didn't rear back and just throw. I did throw it harder because I could at one inning yeah. at a time. And there for a while, I think um, the second year, we lost a lot of our uh, our bullpen help. And I pitched a ton of one-plus out saves. And it became a little bit more of a, a burden to come in and you know get those five outs, six outs, yeah. five outs, and a lot. So it, it definitely took its toll on me. I've thrown 300 innings in one year. I've thrown through 260 basically in the regular season and almost 40 in the postseason. Never have I been more exhausted and tired than going through a campaign as a closer because everyone oh, forgets wow. about the ups and downs. So there's no doubt it's not easier on your arm. Uh, it wasn't for me because the rate I was being used. Yeah. But because I I could keep it 15 pitches and under to get a save, I was used a lot. And I would pitch five out of six days, three in a row a lot. Um, and those add up when you get those uh, up and downs uh, yeah. thrown in there in the middle. I, I want to ask about a year earlier in your career, and I'm excited to ask you this because I often talk about how baseball is the most mentally grueling sport in the world. And I, you know, I played minor league baseball for a few years, and I go 0 for 4, and it could turn into an 0 for 8, 0 for 12, and it can just pile on because you're playing every single day. In 91, you started off the year not great. 2-11, right. you saw a sports psychologist and ended up killing it. Had a great rest of the year, end up going on into the playoffs and pitched great. What did you learn about yourself in that time, and, and what did you learn about your mentality? 
Yeah, I learned that um, when you go into the season with the wrong philosophy or you change your philosophy, a lot of things can happen. We all go into slumps. And I went into a pretty good mental slump because of the offseason that happened that the business side didn't go the way I thought it was. Brand mm -hmm. new general manager. I took it out to where every game I was going to show him why he made the wrong decision on renewing my contract. You know, the business always sometimes get in the way. And I made a vital mistake in changing the way that I thought. Because I went out to try to win every game anyways, but I changed it in a way where it, it got me so out of my normal uh, routine that I started pressing. And when you start pressing, a lot of things can happen. Next thing you know, I get out of the, the gate really slow. I'm 2-11 and 11 in the first half, which would never even get to 2-6 and six these days because nobody gives you those chances <laughs> to kind of st stay in there. I had a great manager in Bobby Cox, and he believed in me and thought that I would turn it around. What I learned was the simplicity of positive thinking in the way that, I again, keeping it simple, that there are things with your eyes and things with your brain that you can create files, cabinet files of where you've already did the successful things. And when you want to draw those back up, you can use utilize that in a way to uh, slow the game down a little bit. I'm a fast worker. I'm an emotional pitcher. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. And I wasn't able to stop a bad inning from happening. Yeah. So as my manager would put it, I was the best 2-11 pitcher in the history of the game. <laughs> but that doesn't mean much when everyone's calling for you to get sent down and out of the rotation. So the, the, the reality of what I did, which was so simple, and the media kind of made it a bigger story, unfortunately, because they never really wanted to interview me. They wanted the story to grow and be bigger than it is. Yeah. I didn't lay on a couch. Nobody TikTok me to, into a great pitcher. <laughs> but the one thing about players that seek this help that is vital is that it can help you navigate the mental slumps and keep them short. I watched a two-minute video of myself throwing every one of my best pitches a right-hander and a left-hander. And I watched that two-minute video before every game. And when I needed to pull up a slider down and away to a right-hander, it was something I had did. I didn't watch somebody else's slider. I watched mine. And so what I would do on the mound is that if I needed to slow it down, I'd step off the mound and see that pitch in my mind. You know, whether I close my eyes or not, I'd see that pitch. I'd step on the mound and reinforce the positive. And what happens in our sport, you can get so negative thinking mm -hmm. that the next thing you know, like you said, 0 for 4 turns into 0 for 8. And it's harder to just simply go pitch by pitch. If every hitter went pitch by pitch and simplified their approach, the game would take longer mentally and you'd be more tired, no doubt. Same thing as a pitcher. And, you know, starting pitchers once every five days, we try to pour in all our emotion and energy for making 125 good decisions. And when you make 5 to 10, 12 different decisions that can affect your game, and I was able to kind of get on that saddle again. And, 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 and I guess you would say meet the danger that inning would provide. The very next start in the second half, I had first and third, one out. And those were the kind of innings that, you know, might have got me in trouble in the first half. When I got out of it, it was like a click that went off and I never looked back. I think the second half, the last two months, I didn't lose a game, something like that, you know, going into the postseason. <laughs> And that, you could never have said that was going to happen when I was 2-11. and yeah. 11. We were nine games back of the Dodgers, and we chased them down in the second half. And, you know, I pitched the three. If you'd have told me, okay, John, you're 2-11, and 11, you're going to pitch the three most significant games in Braves history at the end of the year, I'd like, okay, we need to check you in. Uh, there's something <laughs> wrong with you. And that's what happened. You know, I got a chance to pitch the clincher in the regular season, nine innings, which is the greatest feeling of a starting pitcher there is, to start and finish what you start. To have my catcher jump in my arms. We're yeah. going to the postseason for the first time in forever. And then to go on the road in Pittsburgh and pitch a nine-inning complete game shutout uh, in game seven. 
to take us to the World Series. Same thing. He jumped in my arms. And then to have that happen almost one more time in game seven against Jack Morris, 0-0 going into the ninth. You know, those things, when I look back, um, served me well for the rest of my career. And, I, and I'm grateful that I went through what I did to become a better version of myself. That's incredible. Um, who, who's, whose idea was it? Was it your idea to, to go see somebody or did somebody get in your ear and say, hey, you should, you know, this, this might help you? It actually was John Sherholtz, our general manager, and he asked me if I wouldn't mind. I said, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I was at a point where I was so frustrated with myself. I, yeah. I, I would have tried just about anything. The process was so simple, and I don't want to take away from the process, but the story became so big that they, they, they I didn't even know that Jack was sitting in the stands wearing a particular color shirt. Like <laughs> I was so locked in to the simplicity of what I learned yeah. that I kind of mastered that really fast. And this is something that anybody can learn in, in life when they're going through some tough times is how to mentally change some habits that create, you know, negative thoughts. Look, the brain doesn't understand don't. In other words, if you tell me don't hang a slider, well, it remembers hang slider. It's the yeah. last command. And so uh, whether it's golf or whether it's baseball, I try to reinforce the positive, like hit it here or throw it here. And yeah. I don't want to hear somebody say, hey, there's water there. Don't hit it right. I'd rather have somebody tell me hit it left. <laughs> yeah. And those kind of things helped, you know, when I was on the mound. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, some fun questions for you as we as we finish up here soon. First of which being, what was your favorite Greg Maddox prank that he ever did? Oh man, there wasn't many you could say here um, that are PG. <laughs> um, his favorite prank. You know, he used to do things that, um, well, let's just say you didn't want him riding in your rent-a-car because <laughs> he was going to make sure that you didn't get your deposit back or something like that. No, he he basically was, uh, he didn't do any bodily harm to anybody, but he did, he's lucky he didn't get beat up. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> That's great. Uh, your favorite Bobby Cox ejection of all time. Oh, man, it's going to be my ejection, actually. Um, I got ejected in Cincinnati in the top of the or the bottom of the fourth with a big lead. It was an undue ejection. It was a mistake. Um, I was I was backing up third. I was close to the bag. The runner slid past the bag. Chipper tagged him. I came in pointing to the tag and the umpire in his rotation stepped on my foot and immediately ejected. me. Now, of course, I lose my mind because I did nothing wrong. And he said that I bumped him. And of course we are chest to chest and I'm yelling at him saying, this is unbelievable. You don't know what you're talking about. And then Bobby comes out and puts his hand between the umpire and me to separate us. And then he gets ejected and he had, there were so many things that he said there that I couldn't say on TV <laughs> that were so funny when I look back because he was going, going crazy. Uh, over the umpire and he told me he said john you're not coming out of this game go stand on the mound so i'm standing on the mound with my <laughs> arms crossed like a five-year-old and i said i'm not coming out of the mound my manager told me i'm not coming off the mound and it was one of the most epic e ejections because the the surprise of taking out your starting pitcher and it did nothing wrong i didn't even get suspended i lost a win um 
and those are the kind of decisions I always wish were, you know, they say they're, they're irreversible. Those are the ones that cooler heads should come across and be able to say, I, I made a mistake there, but there were so many that I'm going to be the first to tell you that, that Greg Maddox got top, Bobby Cox ejected way more than me and Clive, <laughs> uh, way more. And a couple of them he did on purpose because he just knew Bobby would, would kind of go, go off on the umpires. One of the favorite sayings of Bobby that I had, I'd always sit next to him in the dugout is it would be the top of the first. And he would yell to the umpire both ways, both ways blue. <laughs> and somebody would have to remind him, we haven't even gotten to the bottom of the first yet. Bobby. So yeah, those days are gone, but he was, uh, he fought great. for his players. We always asked him why he wouldn't let us pay for some of the fines and why he did it as much as he did. He said he'd rather keep the players in the game, obviously, than than himself. So um, it was an amazing, uh, amazing, amazing to watch all those years and him getting ejected. And you knew when it was going to happen, too. You knew it's like, here we go. And that's why we would say to Greg Maddox, don't tell him that. Like, he'd ask a question, <laughs> where was that pitch? And Bobby, yeah. and Bobby would ask Greg, where was that pitch? And Doggy would go, it was right there, Skipper. And as soon as he said that, he would walk back up, and then within 10 minutes, he would get ejected. <laughs> That's great. Um, in your career, the toughest batter you faced or, like, your toughest out? Yeah, it's Tony Gwynn. I mean, Tony Gwynn is by far one of the greatest hitters of any generation. He would be able to uh, survive in any generation. He hit 444 off of me. I think I struck him out once. <laughs> and the most amazing statistic that I can tell you about Tony Gwynn, Pedro Martinez, myself, Tom Glavin, and Greg Maddox, we struck out over 12,000 guys collectively, okay? We faced uh, uh, over 300 times, 280, 300 and some times we faced Tony Gwynn. Mm -hmm. And collectively, the four of us struck him out three times. Oh. So just think God. about that. Like, he's had more four-hit games than he's had three strikeouts games or, 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 you know, just like, it's just ridiculous. And, and the way that his craft exceeded everybody else's, you know, because he was so good at putting the ball in play and getting hits. And, you know, they, they say he might struggle in today's generation of velocity. Absolutely not. He would get more walks. He would be able to hit the ball the other way. They couldn't shift him, And uh, he was just the greatest hitter of our generation. Incredible. That's that's actually incredible that he struck out less times than he had four hit games. Yeah. Um, so you you're a great golfer yourself, and Tiger Woods has actually said that you're the best non professional golfer that he has ever played with. Do you have a favorite story from golfing with Tiger Woods? Oh, I have I have so many. Um, First of all, TV doesn't do it justice uh, on the heyday of playing with Tiger Woods when he was number one all those years. Of mm -hmm. course, we spent spring training in Orlando, and he was in Orlando as well as Annika was. So my favorite is a story uh, where we were playing a fivesome, and there was the fifth hole was a par of three, and the scorecard read five, four, three, two, one. I had two buddies with me. He had a buddy with him. My buddy, who was a Scotty, who was a 12 handicap at the time, got the hole in one. So I picked the ball out of the <laughs> hole 
And I said to Scotty, I said, hey, what's more believable when we get back home? The fact that you got a hole in one or beat Tiger by four on one <laughs> hole. So Tiger got the five and he gave me a little gesture, not claiming that I was number one, but he gave me a little gesture with his finger and he proceeded to go 12 under the next 27 hole, 22 holes, 12 <laughs> under and 22 holes. And he went to a gear that is just unbelievable. And that's why with Tiger or MJ, the greatest of the greats, you don't talk trash. It's because they know they're going to go to the next level. So <laughs> Tiger was a blast to play golf with. Um, he took me to spring. He took me from spring training to the Masters to play a couple weeks before the actual uh, Masters tournament. Mm -hmm. And um, I just learned so much, of course, watching him and playing with him and Annika at the same time. So when he makes that remark, it's flattering, but I don't know how many amateur players he actually played with. So uh, I'll be glad to be the number one contributor to his fun <laughs> for all those years. But we had a blast. He loves sports, loves competing. And um, obviously, it's, it's a miracle what he's doing right now. Well, one that he has played with is, is my brother. So my next question to you is, you show up to the course one day, you're playing with Justin, how many strokes are you giving Justin on the golf course? Well, he's gotten to a level now where I think, you know, he hits at 30 or 40, maybe 50 by me. Um, I think I've got to give him two aside. Right, I think that's about <laughs> it right now. He's gotten his game. I played with him forever ago when he was with the Tigers, and I was still doing some broadcasting. And uh, his game is uh, rock solid from a distance standpoint, and he just doesn't play – as much as I do because he's involved still in dominating hitters. But yeah, we played at uh, MJ's course together. We we're partners. Glad to say that we mm -hmm. won. And uh, I, uh, I'm enamored with how far he can hit it. <laughs> Love that. So, all right, to, to finish up here, let's talk about your transition into the booth. What was that process like for you? And, and was it an easy transition for you to go from the playing field to, to the booth? Uh, no, it wasn't easy. Um, one of the things I applied to the booth, I applied as a pitcher. I'm not afraid to laugh. I'm not afraid to make fun of myself. And uh, I don't take life too seriously. So I'm willing to learn and put in the work. And it's a lot of work. Uh, when you transition from your job to another job, but it's the same industry, you think you know, uh, you can just kind of roll with it and just go from memory. But the game has changed so much for me since I left to where it is today. I've had to work extremely hard catching up with all the nuances and all the way the game is played today versus when I played it. So you can't live in a different era and you've got to be able to adapt. And there's just a lot more work than people would have ever known. I think on game day, I'm spending five to seven hours of prep and postseason spent a ton of time watching video and doing things like that. But I, I just think that, you know, when you're willing to not be afraid to fail, um, then or laugh at yourself, then there's no big problem in the adjustment. Uh, but it is definitely a lot more work than I thought. Talk for a second about Shohei Otani and, and what he is doing. Yeah, well, Shohei is, um, I, I never dreamt I would be seeing this as much as I have the last couple of years. I, I didn't think this was a recipe for success. It's a tribute to him. He's an unbelievable player. And I, I, I know that doing what I had to do was hard enough. And he's doing that plus hitting at a high <laughs> level. So it's really incredible. I don't know how many longer, how many years he'll be able to do this, but I root for him. I think it's fantastic. 
and his attitude and the way that he approaches the game is just unreal. He's handled everything that you could be thrown at him. And literally he's a superstar in a, in a, in a, in a way that yep. I don't know that anybody could have anticipated. John, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, good luck the rest of the way, of course, and eventually into the playoffs. I appreciate you so much for joining me, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. See ya. All right. I wanted to thank John Smoltz for joining me. If you had told 12-year-old Ben watching the Braves every single night that I was going to get to have John Smoltz on flipping bats and talk to him, well, I don't know if I would have believed you. But what a blast of a conversation. I hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you like, subscribe the podcast wherever you're listening. That really helps. And follow along on social media as well, at Flippin' Bats Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And you can watch the video of every episode on YouTube at Flippin' Bats Pod as well. Thank you all for listening. This has been an absolute blast. And I will see you all next time on Flippin' Bats.